This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back, dear listeners, to another great episode of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. And today we've got a very special episode where we've invited Mr. Chris Martin of the Half Hour of Heterodoxy podcast to challenge us on the very concept, the very notion, the essence, the heart, the fundamental thread that is our motto. Are we really not doing the thinking for you? I've had an existential crisis as we walked into this episode and Chris is going to beat us over the head a little bit. Half Hour of Heterodoxy is a great podcast that really matches our deepest core, which is, you know, looking at the world a little bit differently than what you tend to be told and assume to believe. Um, we got to meet Chris at the Sound Education Podcast Conference at Harvard last year. And we, you know, we knew that we had a sibling in arms the moment we met. And we've been looking forward to this for a long time. So Chris Martin from Coldplay, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. I will not be doing any singing oh. in this episode. Uh, oh. Maybe next time. Maybe. Maybe, next maybe we'll year. have to get you on yeah. again then. Yeah, I can talk all about my marriage to Gwyneth Paltrow at some point. Sounds exciting. Let's just yeah. ditch the, yeah. the politics and thinking about the world and just talk about Gwyneth Paltrow for the yeah. whole episode. That's whole true. foods. <laughs> <laughs> well, half hour of heterodoxy, if you're... A reconsider listener and don't know much about Half Hour of Heterodoxy. It's an offshoot of Heterodox Academy. It's produced by Heterodox Academy. So maybe offshoot isn't the correct word. But I and John Haidt and several other academics founded Heterodox Academy in 2015 to coincide with the publication of some papers that suggested that political research or research on politically loaded topics in the social sciences was being affected adversely by the fact that there was a lot of ideological homogeneity within the disciplines, especially social psychology. That was the big paper published by John and a few other psychologists. I published a sole-authored paper in The American Sociologist about the same topic. Nick Rosencrantz published a paper in Law. So since then, Heterodox Academy has been trying to make the academy more welcoming place to people of different ideologies, people of different religions. And it's uh, actually evolved into an organization that's trying to help students be better at listening to one another and uh, being open to reconsidering some of their most cherished views in the light of new evidence Ooh. and being less polarized. And since this is a joint episode for, for listeners of Half Hour of Heterodoxy that are not familiar with Reconsider, we look at 
different topics of the day and try to place them in a broader context, basically. So our, our slogan is we don't do the thinking for you. And the idea there is maybe if you're familiar with a certain issue and you've heard narratives A and B and you like B more, B is definitely your narrative. We just want to tell you that narrative C, D, and E also exist and that those are options and why people have those positions or have those opinions. And that's kind of it. Then we step back and do our very best not to advocate for any particular policies. And that's where we get our slogan. Yeah, our passion is actually taking people and shaking them by the collar a bit and getting them to sort of wake up from a bit of a fugue-like state they've had about a particular issue. And our background is not so sophisticated as Chris and certainly not Dr. Hype, who, if you listen to Reconsider, we'd love to cite him a lot. He's one of our great influencers. But we, our background is uh, we both have studied economics and political science fairly extensively. Xander studied economics at school. I studied political science. And then I got personally interested in economics, went and studied that. Xander got personally interested in political science and international relations, went and studied that. We both studied some philosophy. So I started Reconsider Media, published a book called Wedged, and also very much influenced by Height. Wedged is about the, the tendency for Americans to choose political tribes and sacrifice their own thinking to that tribe and decide that issues, just like decide collectively that issues are much more divisive than they really are. And then and much more divisive than each of us really feel about them. Wedge talks about why that happened, how that happened, and sort of proves that it's happening, and a little bit of what you can do about it. And Xander's background, go ahead, Xander. Yeah, my background was in economics. So I studied that first, went out, worked in finance for a number of years, started a company in the energy efficiency space. And now I have shifted full on into the international relations realm. I work for a company called Geopolitical Futures, and we look at big picture stories about the international system, where we are in history, where things are going and why. And I joined Eric at Reconsider to work on both some written and, and podcast efforts back in 2015. And our our passion is talking about, yeah, why people might be focused on one narrative or another, how tribal affiliations influence those narratives. And we that's what we talk about. So when we had met Chris, he had a really challenging couple of questions for us. And I want to turn it over to him to sort of set us up for this talk today. So my questions were, I don't recall the exact wording, but my questions roughly were, if you're trying to not do the thinking for someone, how are you sure you're not really doing the thinking for someone? In other words, you are basing your decision to just cover some topics on the basis of some values, and you certainly value, say, truth over falsehood. So how do you occasionally step back and say, are we really not doing the thinking for people? Eric, you want to go first or you want me to? I'll I'll go first in part because I'm going to set up why this shook me so much when it was asked. Fox News at least had, I don't know if they still do, a slogan, we report, you decide, right? Which is pretty similar. You know, we just give you the facts and you get to decide what to think. And Fox News's reputation is not particularly one of being an unbiased source of facts. And and regardless of how you feel about Fox News, just generally the majority of Americans do not think that it is unbiased, right? They they have a reporting bias. Yeah, I think we can we can confidently say it, it is biased. Right. Oh yeah. We can actually study that. Yes. So we can we can also show that, you know, that by reasonable metrics it is it is quite biased. You know, and so I actually 
occasionally have had moments of angst and consternation over our own motto because of that, because it harkens back to disingenuous bias, right? It is so much better if you have a bias to know it and to be forward about it and declare like, look, this is what I believe is true. This is what I think is important. I'm going to try to make a case for it. And that way, you know, that way everyone knows what they're getting themselves into. And you are you aren't being intentionally deceptive at that point, right? Whereas if you tell people, hey, we don't have biases, we are objective in some way, we are beyond bias, we don't tell you what to think. And if you're good enough and clever enough and you know your tongue is silver enough, you might just convince people that's true even when you are telling them what to think. So it's very dangerous ground that we play on. And of course, I've read enough of Height and a bunch of other people to know that no human is really is without bias, right? Of course, I have biases. I have, and it's not even just biases because bias implies like a you know mental. It's not a flaw, but like it, it is something that influences reason, right? It's something beyond pure reason. You have a tendency to believe that something is true or or want something to be true, even if like the the facts in front of you would not lead you that way. That's kind of what bias means. And there are all kinds of biases. We, we list them in our show. But of course, not only do I have biases, but I have things that I believe are true and that, you know, I'll see other bits of evidence and I'll still continue to think that the thing I think is true or I'll change my mind and then I'll think that's true as well. I'm not without a set of, as Chris said, values or a set of what I, of things I think are true. And so, when I was thinking about this, the question of do we really not do any thinking for anyone, suddenly it starts to sound like, well, maybe that's literally impossible, right? Maybe it's maybe that to make that claim ever in any circumstance is disingenuous. So I've got some thoughts on what our motto and what our commitment means to us, but I want to shut up and let Xander talk for a minute. I mean, I agree with a lot of what Eric said. I think if Chris, I haven't read, clearly, I haven't studied cognitive biases in as de- as much of depth as you have, but I read Kahneman. And I, I, I know that if, if you approach the subject of cognitive biases from, from a fairly critical perspective, then it's actually impossible for no one to be biased. Everyone has biases. It's like you said, just by selecting a certain topic, you are introducing a bias into the conversation period. So I, I think from a certain angle, Everyone is biased. It is impossible to not be biased. It is impossible to be purely objective. And recognizing that, I think sort of the best next thing that you can do is strive for objectivity as much as possible. And some of the ways we do that on the show is we do quite a lot of work before each show, doing the research and challenging one another uh, in terms of sort of what we want to talk about and how we present issues. We do our best on the show to be open and frank if we do have a bias that's completely unavoidable on a certain topic. We did a show, it was a while ago at this point, about some privacy issues with Apple and the FBI and the iPhone that the FBI wanted unlocked. And I spent two years as a a privacy advocate for a group that was working against mass surveillance after the Snowden leaks, there's no way I can be unbiased about that topic. So I had to, I had to mention that up front. So I think that's part of it. I, in terms of striving for that next best thing, I think what you can do is just try to represent what people think, what narratives are out there, why those narratives are convincing for different sorts of people, and how the data that you have at your disposable for uh, disposal for discussing those issues 
could be leading you to, to misrepresent one thing or another and introduce some degree of probability or, or uncertainty around the topics that you're discussing whenever possible. The one thing I want to say on this that I think is true is that, of course, everyone who listens to us is going to be infected with some sort of bias. And we have, you know, we have our own window of stuff that we think is reasonable. And we have a window of stuff outside of which we think is unreasonable. You know, we don't even broker. One thing we don't do that people, if I introduce the concept, will accuse me of before they've heard the show is, oh, you present what the left thinks and what the right thinks. And you say, see, both have equally good points, right? Everyone's got equally good points. And that's certainly not what we do. I think the commitment that we really make that is the, the essence of our motto and the essence of our show is while we're introducing certainly curation bias to a large extent based on what we, what we cover, what we're committed to is a dialectic is like, you know, what's our pedagogy ultimately? It's a dialectic. So we are introducing dialogue that is meant to shake people out of thoughts of or patterns of thought that they have. I've told people that I'm a, that we are breakers, not builders. So we run around with hammers and we hit things a lot and it can be uncomfortable because then we just leave you. We just say, okay, this thing that you felt was rock solid. We've like kind of broken through the clay facade on it. And it's a little bit empty inside. Now what? And there's not much we can do at that point other to let them come to a conclusion other than point to some, you know, point them to different ways that some different people have thought about it without telling them, you know, what we think is the best thing. So the biggest thing, the most important thing that I think is behind that is we don't draw conclusions about what is true, what is right in any of these realms. We with the, probably a heavy dose of curation bias, go and beat things up a little bit and then walk away. And that pattern, I think once people, what our hope is with that pattern of experiencing that with us and, and going on that journey with us, because it's often a journey for us as well, as we explore these topics, by people going on through that journey with us, they're going to be able to do more and more of it on their own, at which point any leaning on us they've been doing, any, any sense of crutch, they start to let that go and run forward themselves and, you know, leave, kind of leave us behind. There's a, there's a point that that reconsider should be left behind in, in your journey of finding truth. That's an interesting perspective to take for a podcast. I think a lot of podcasters want people to just keep listening. It's a, it's a very altruistic perspective, I would say. So what I hear you saying is that in a way you're like anthropologists, you're trying to go into this, try to go into a tribe and just describe what is going on and try to understand the internal mental states of people there without evaluating what's going on in that particular tribe from your perspective. So in a way you're anthropological, which is valuable. I think anthropology sometimes is, is less valued because it, at least for a long time, did not focus on Western society. So it just got bracketed and political scientists and historians and sociologists talked to one another and Anthropologists were off in a corner doing their own thing. Fortunately, we now do have anthropologists who study things like the anthropology of Wall Street. And what I hear you saying is you also you also try to be journalists in the tradition of, let's say, a magazine like The Economist, where you do a lot of investigation, but you don't advertise yourself as having a political slant per se, and you just want to get the facts out there, but not just the facts, but the facts into a narrative like a good historian would. So maybe you're part anthrop anthropologist and part historians. Is that maybe a fair description? 
I would say yes. I would say I don't know if we're journalists to the sense in, in the sense that a lot of the times journalists are actually going out there and getting the scoop, getting the story. And we're not. We're reading the scoop. We're reading the stories that journalists are collecting and we're trying to put them in perspective best as possible. I I will take 15 second umbrage with with your your comment on the the economists. I don't think they're they do a particularly good job of of presenting information unbiased at all. I think they do an incredible amount of policy advocacy in their work. They say if Mr. X wants to accomplish Y, it would be best that they do Z. And a lot of their stuff, especially in the last couple of years, has taken I don't. I don't really want to categorize it, but I, I would say that it fits firmly within a school of thought that is not trying to just present information. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I would actually agree with that. I I feel like, relatively speaking, they try to adopt that tone relative to journals like, say, the National Review or the Nation. Sure, the tone is there. I will agree with that definitely. One question I had for for you, Chris, is sorry. I guess I should answer your question and not just dodge it. Well, I might dodge it a little bit. I need to think. I need to think about what's the best analogy for us. My analogy was a little more. How do we say? A little more messianic, and so I'm going to feel really bad saying this, but I like to think of us as going at things a little bit like Plato, where you know what we do is if you read Plato's dialogues, you know what's happening in Socrates is constantly saying like. Oh, so the logical conclusion of what you just said is blah. So you think blah. And people are like, sweet Jesus, no, I don't think blah. That's insane. Like, that's that's absurd. And it goes, oh, so if you don't think that, then what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And and what happens is, you know, is one of two things always happens to the people that Socrates talks to. They either walk away, like, you know, dazed and confused, and they're probably going to go, like, become a monk for a while to try to, you know, sort out everything. Because everything they thought was true has been upended. Or they like retreat into their shell. And that's, you know, that's how those dialogues tend to end. And we are certainly not as talented at this as is Plato. Good clarification. (laughs) Yeah, thanks. Thanks. (laughs) You know, we are not the greatest thinker that has ever existed in the history of the West. Well, well, Socrates was kind of a troll. I think that's the consensus now. He was a very smart troll, but he was trolling people. Yes, but it was his, but it was a pedagogical tool, right? And it was a pedagogical troll. He was a very decisive, it was a very intentionally pedagogical troll. And I think what's, why I think this is so interesting is actually what we're doing is we're, you know, part of our bias that we take is we tend to go take hammers against orthodox positions. And, you know, probably the, I would, I would assume that most people in the U.S. accept that there are generally two orthodoxies about different issues. Like you bring up an issue, you say, what do people think about this? They're going to say, oh, it's this or it's that. And so we're like running around banging on that. And, you know, there's some risks that we're necessarily advocating for the heterodox positions, which in the U.S. are, you know, legion but tiny. And as I was thinking about the show, Chris, one of the things I wanted to think about that I think you actually hinted at early on was that when we're talking about heterodoxy in U.S. politics, you know, I think the first thought a lot of people are going to have is external heterodoxy, where they go, I'm a conservative or I'm a liberal. We are right. And then there are these like weird people that think weird things who are the other side, right? They're either red or they're blue. They're, they must be heterodox. As I revealed, I think, you know, I think these are the orthodoxes and that there are these literal heterodoxies like greenism and libertarianism and communism and, and white nationalism and all this stuff. I think you come at the notion of heterodoxy from a much more positive angle and you see this as powerful. And I think you see internal heterodoxies as useful 
And I want to understand that better. I think that's a, it's an interesting point. My brain is sort of going in two directions at this point. I mean, I think one, one interesting question whenever you approach these topics is, are you talking about psychological facts or are you talking about the concrete stuff that's happening on the ground right now? I mean, when it comes to psychological facts, I think you could take a time machine, go back to any point in time and uh, find people who are roughly liberal and roughly conservative. I know those terms became, well, the terms left and right became much more common after 1789 and the French Revolution. But you can go back further and, and see people who are, in retrospect, we might call them relatively liberal or not. Like Socrates, for example, I think would be considered sort of liberal or even radical by challenging a lot of conventions and ultimately being sentenced to death for them, although you could have a Socratic debate about even that. So when you when you take these psychological dispositions, we know there's a personality trait called openness to experience and another trait called conscientiousness. And in general, people who are who are kind of high in openness to experience and kind of lower in conscientiousness tend to be liberal and vice versa. So I think it's it's important to understand that people are going to bring these psychological lenses to situations even if they don't necessarily form tribes. So we look at maybe the period from about 1940 to 1980 as this Cold War consensus area where Democrats and liberals had much more in common. But even then, you could see that liberals and conservatives in each party, and the parties were more heterogeneous at the time, were bringing different lenses to things. I think where things get risky is then you have to look at a particular point in time, like right now, for example, if you look at the current incarnation of the Democratic Party and the current incarnation of the Republican Party, which is not representative of where they were 100 years ago and not where they will be 100 years from now, I think you can you can fall into this trap of both-siderism and wanting to say, well, there, there are these psychological lenses of conservatism and liberalism that people bring, and they bias everyone. So therefore, half of what the Republican Party is saying is probably true, and half of the po- points that the Democratic Party are saying are probably true. And then that's where things get risky because we actually know that's not true right now. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I think the, uh, Eric, what is the term? Like false equivalency? Like just, yes. That, yeah. yeah. That's the word we were looking for. I, I don't think either of us think that that's, that's accurate. I think you can have, I mean, forget that Democrats and Republicans exist. We don't, we don't live in that world. We live in a world where like snoggles and, Biff Tarts are the two parties. I don't know. Those are the first sounds. Death of- to Biff Tarts. <laughs> Snoggles 2020. <laughs> see, see, tribes would emerge almost immediately. It is entirely the- possible that Biff Tarts lie about 95% of things and that they just don't represent things accurately. And maybe it's because, you know, it's like all of the media is controlled. All the Biff Dart media is controlled by like a, 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 I don't know, a party of eight that that controls all of all of the content that goes out like Soviet style. I, I don't know, but this is an extreme hyperbolic example to make the point that no, of course, just because there are two parties does not mean that they share truth equally. That does that is that doesn't make sense. I think the data though right now show that even if you look at the voter bases, if you look at Matt Grossman's research in political science, for example, there there is an asymmetry in the sense that if you ask people, should your party be more open to compromise or should it completely resist compromise? Um, Democratic voters tend to be more open to compromise. Republican voters tend to not be. It's not like a 80 percentage point difference, but it's a pretty, pretty substantial difference. If I recall, it's about 15 percentage points. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burroughs Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Or so. So and right now, if you think of Democratic voters as, as, as your one tribe, they, they really are more open to compromise. And to, to just take another issue, the issue of fake news as well, if you look at Andy Guess and Brendan Nyhan's research, there's fake news is mostly an older white Republican phenomenon of a set of voters forwarding fake news to one another in that circle. So again, it's not that Democrats are forwarding fake news to each other and Republicans are forwarding fake news to each other. And there really is more, at least as of 2016 to the present, I'd say there is more fake news on the Republican side. I think we, we know that with a certain degree of, we know that with a fair degree of certainty. The thing I want to quibble about the first one is, gosh, I'm not going to be able to cite whose study it is, but I'd have to like go grab my own damn book is one of the impressions that I have. And I have probably read some research on it at some point. I owe, I owe it to you in the show notes, my friends, I owe it to you in the show notes is that someone can say, Ooh, when they ask, when asked like, how open are you to compromise? Someone can say, I am very open to compromise. And why would they say that they're open to compromise? Because it's part of their self identity their, their sense of identity that they are someone who is open to compromise, right? And it is one thing to say it and another thing to do it. And I have, what I would quibble with is depending on anyone's, now it doesn't mean it's not true, but I would quibble with is depending on anyone's self-reporting of their preferences in a poll or even in public or something like that, because they're, they're saying it because of it's, it's a sense of who they think they are. And then the question is going to come down to like, hey, you know, are they actually going to do it when the rubber when the rubber hits the road? Because we go, oh, we're open to compromise, except with those maniacs in the other party. What they want us to compromise on is unacceptable. We're no longer asking about compromise. Everything they want is against our core values. And so I often... Again, not to try to change the perspective over to going like, ah, everyone's just as bad as everyone. But to but to say one just I think it's an important point for when we are doing this research and looking at these polls and we ask people like what they think or what they believe in, they 
we, we have to keep, we have to know that that is tentative until we see them with skin in the game. Gosh, I forget his name. The guy who wrote the book Skin in the Game, he wrote Black Swan. Nassim uh, Talib? Thank you, Talib. I love Skin in the Game. I'm totally bought into it. I think that his point that you can't really know what someone believes or you can't really rely on someone reporting something until they have put skin in the game to test it is very valid. And I don't, I don't know if, I don't, I don't know if what I just said resonated with you at all. No, I think there's evidence that uh, there's evidence that making people accountable for their forecasts actually makes them more conscientious and less biased. So so accountability does matter. I think the data, though, I mean, I completely agree that if part of your identity is saying I'm a tolerant person, yes, you will answer on surveys, I'm a tolerant person. So if that were the only data we had, I think it wouldn't be so reliable. But then if you look at um, things like Republicans being called rhinos, Republican in, in name only, right. essentially any any Republican who's open to you to a little bit of compromise gets called a rhino and, and gets purged from the party. And you don't see that happening. There's no Democrat. There's no dino Democrat in name only, for example, phenomenon. There are some people who, you know, there are internal arguments, but there's there's no equivalent phenomenon. Right. I guess at this point, though, and I kind of want to ask you about how some of that other data is collected. But I mean, it seems like we're quickly devolving into a, a conversation about how we categorize different groups of people, which is a valid argument to have. Right. But if we're if we don't even know what a Republican is before we say that Republicans tend to be less willing to compromise, then what 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 exactly is the conversation that we're having? So, Xander, I think I would say most people listening to this, including me, would say, "Ooh, well, I know what a Republican is. It's someone who says they're a Republican. Uh, what's the what's the alternate way of looking at this? Well, I, I'm referring to the the rhino thing, Chris. So you say Republican name only in these studies that you're re- referring to. Are those are rhinos included in the data or because you mentioned that they get purged from the party, that they aren't included somehow in whatever the tag is on the survey or the study that's done to see whether or not they're willing to compromise? Okay, I see what you're saying. So the term rhino, it's it's only used for Republican politicians, so they're generally not used in surveys. What I mean is at the at the electoral level, Republican candidates will refer to other Republican candidates as rhinos. It's not it's not based on survey data at all or media figures who are. Republicans or conservative, like on Fox News, might refer to someone as Republican in name only. I mean, you see this this phenomenon of within the Republican Party of, of valorizing extremism, starting with Newt Gingrich. And so people who, I mean, you get people who follow the strategy and then get eaten by the strategy like itself, like Eric Cantor, for example, portrayed himself as a, as a radical who was going to shake things up. And then someone portrayed himself as more radical than Eric Cantor and Cantor lost his primary. Or, or his seat. I can't remember if he lost in the primary or the general. So you see that phenomenon of, of I'm going to be even more extreme and less compromising than you. Dating, dating to Newt Gingrich's strategy of just trying to say we're, we're not going to be accommodating and our, our message should be we're going to throw the establishment out because the whole establishment is corrupt and we need new radicals to come in. And you, you see that cycling in, into some of those radicals just being eaten by that strategy. So you- your entire project, the Paradox Academy, one of the things you hinted at earlier that I'm really excited about is that, you know, the the cabal of y'all guys that have gotten together here, they see a path forward as including encouraging more heterogeneous thought within 
within a party, or at least that was within within the parties within a party or something like that. That was the that was the hint I got from what you'd mentioned earlier, and I'm excited for you to elaborate elaborate on kind of what that mission looks like because I I'm well for a lot of reasons. I would say our mission is, well, we started out being more research focused and now I'd say we're more teaching focused. So the research focus side was, I'm not talking about party elites or politicians, just talking at the academic level. If you have a lot of people from one ideology, you're not really going to be aware of facts that falsify the research you're talking about and certain things are just going to become taboo. So even if you have research to support certain arguments, it's just going to be taboo to even bring up that evidence. So that's going to be uh, I mean, the the whole project of research ends up getting corrupted or, or not being very effective or as effective as it could be because you're not using all the data that are out there. You're not touching certain issues because it could be taboo and, and you lose the respect of your discipline. And now we're more teaching focused. So now we're more uh, focused on within the academy, how do you get undergraduates to be open to the fact that they might learn from people who differ from them? in terms of their ideology. I mean, I think because college attracts a certain, well, most colleges attract people who have a certain degree of intellectual curiosity. I think most students actually come into college wanting to learn these things, but then there are forces within college, some political forces, and in colleges, it's typically left-wing forces that suggest that really there's just there's this war going on there's a political war going on and you have to be on one side of that war to defeat the other side you often see terms like allies being thrown around right. which is a term you would use in a war and you know there might be times in post college life when that i mean i don't want to make general statements about post college life but when you're in college i think it's important to to figure out how to get people regardless of who they are to be intellectually curious and figure out sort of the way you figure out how to have these dialectical arguments with people rather than making your whole college experience about purifying your college population and expelling anyone yes. who doesn't have certain beliefs. I remember President Obama made a speech at, I don't know which college, it was certainly like related to, I think, some of this phenomenon that you described of purification and like, you know, using shouting or, you know, using sort of making someone socially uncomfortable or socially ostracized publicly, public shaming, uh, other uh, tactics like that to silence them, to silence unacceptable thought. And I think this, if I remember correctly, this case is from the left. He came and made, you know, gave a speech where he said, look, you, you should be able to, essentially, you should be able to win with your argument. Like you have a better position. You know, he's, he's obviously a Democrat. So he's support, you know, he's supporting a lot of these people and saying, you know, you have a better position. You, you know, out argue them, right? Like show why you're right. And I don't know, I found that a little bit heartwarming that we're, that the, the idea is to talk about it rather than, rather than shame unacceptable thought into, into oblivion. So my based, you know, based on what you guys have learned, what can, what can reconsiders, what can reconsiders listeners learn from that, in order to one help them be help themselves be more intellectually curious and less purifying and two you know help them help friends who are particularly dug in to be open to the same are most reconsider listeners college age or are they mostly older than that all over all yeah over. it's it's shocking is we have a sh hey reconsider listeners we never told you but you were shockingly diverse congratulations and thank you we love all of you to put in very broad strokes, I would say keep tabs on what's happening in the worlds of moral psychology and political psychology, but also keep tabs on what's happening in the world of pol political science and history. 
So I'd say moral psychology and political psychology are important because, as you pointed out, there is some tribalism out there. And some of that research shows to what extent, uh, if you divide the world simplistically into just two tribes, liberals and conservatives, uh, to what extent there is some symmetry in those biases. I mean, Jared Crawford's research is one good place to start, for example. And then uh, political science and history research, too. Uh, I think that's valuable for many reasons, but one is to figure out, uh, well, to understand propaganda better, because I think one of the things you don't get from psychology is understanding propaganda. So also understanding that um, there's some perspectives that are basically people being paid to spout lies, but do it in a, in a way that sounds very sincere. So you have to keep both of those things in mind at the same time. Okay. Now, now I have two questions for you. If I, if I need to repeat yeah. one, let me know. The first, talking about how people could go about becoming more informed about history, becoming more informed about these issues of propaganda. I know lots and lots of very intelligent people whose profession is not in this industry, who nevertheless are concerned and care about the world. And even for people like me, who it is my profession all day long to read about world events from different perspectives to understand what's actually happening, to try to distill the facts from the way that it's being told, it can be extraordinarily difficult. And I spend 10 to 12 hours a day doing it. So my first question is, how can your non-professional who wants to be as well-informed as possible, recognizing all the challenges that you just pointed out in terms of trying to distill all of these different perspectives from all the different sources that are out there, go about doing that. And well, how about I'll just leave that and I'll come back to the next question after. I mean, I think that's a really, really challenging question. One of the resources that we've created that's now its own thing is Project Open Mind or the Open Mind Platform. And that's was created for professors to use in classrooms, but now it's customized so you can use it in a religious institution or an industrial or, or business setting. So just to get people to understand the importance of being open-minded, if let's say you're managing a company, or even if you're curious about just understanding how you might be more biased than you think, that's a good route. But your specific question is more about once you get past that point, how do you make sure you're getting a certain degree of, of heterodoxy in your views? and I don't know if there's a simple answer to that. I would say if you're let's somehow only getting your news from Fox News or only getting your news from one single channel, you're probably doing a poor job of it. I think one thing that is good about the world now is that there are various podcasts. Uh, some of them are left-wing leaning, some are right. There's a really good one um, because, well, partly because the Weekly Standard is no longer in business, a lot of people who wrote for them are now doing their podcast called The Bulwark. So I'd say you should subscribe to a podcast like that and then maybe subscribe to Chris Hayes' podcast if you're in America that you know is purely about American political issues. That might be one good way to do it. Ultimately, there's no substitute for doing the research. And I don't know how we're going to have a world where people have 12 hours in the day to do as much research as you're doing. I mean, what would you suggest? Oh, boy. Yeah. Turn it back around on me, will you? <laughs> <laughs> it cuts both ways. I think you're right. I think, well, so at Reconsider, we published two sets of documents that we kind of keep referring to. One's called Reconsider Principles, and another is called the Reconsider Discussion Strategies. And the idea is laying out some of the common problems that you will encounter when trying to learn more about any particular topic. And that involves both in interacting with other people and interacting with your own thoughts and frankly, at some point, I'd love to get you to read about it because you're actually, you know, an expert in this field. And we're kind of, we collected a lot of this information from our own experiences. But for example, being skeptical of even of sources that you particularly trust. So internal skepticism, being, being skeptical of the things that you tend to depend on because you will be less critical of them. 
would be one thing. And that perhaps may drive you to seek out more than just just NPR or just Fox. And I'm not I'm not equating these. This is not a false equivalency thing. It's just sources of information that I know a lot of people tend to depend almost exclusively on them as sources for information. So if you really like NPR and you just come to expect them as a source that you trust inherently, then perhaps finding a way to be more skeptical of them on a more regular basis so that you are asking questions about the information that they're presenting to you that may drive you to seek out 15 minutes of your one hour of day of consuming information, a new source that represents that topic in a different way. So that might be one way of doing it. Trying to find a way when you're having a conversation with someone else that is presenting information to you of seeing them as a person that's after a common goal that is a good goal that is trying to improve the welfare of our of our shared country and understanding that even though they may be pre- presenting a policy prescription or a podcast or TV show is presenting a prescription that really sits wrong with you, trying nevertheless to see if at all possible, if that person is coming from a place that at least they think is good so they can see them as a good person. And I think that that, that lowers the defenses a lot. And when you lower your own defenses, you're more likely to be less reactive and to be actually able and willing to hear new ideas. So those are some ideas. But I certainly think that trying to diversify your sources of information, like you said, Chris, is a good idea. And there's no reason not to be able to do it today with the wealth wealth of podcasts and YouTube channels that are out there. We work a lot with a guy named Enrique Fonseca from Visual Politik. He has two great channels in Spanish and English that 12 to 15 minute bite sizes of stories twice a week that you can get. And there's there's a million of channels like this now with focus on geopolitics and different battles and history. And there's no shortage of information. It's just hard to know where to start sometimes. So it's sort of like a dual purpose uh, or a dual raison d'etre at, at Reconsider is trying to be able to begin to offer, be a source of sort of jumping off where you can find some some additional sources of information like that. So we're like a repository and we're trying to do that. I don't know if we've been as effective as we could be, Eric, but we both do other things. So anyways, that's my answer. The the thing I would add to it is I think that you've got to, to some extent, be able to use, you know, use those same principles, use some smarts that you've gathered, some skepticism you've gathered and, you know, mix, you know, mix with some open-mindedness you've gathered over time to outsource a little bit of this learning. You know, I think that, you know, Congress people, it's their, like their, well, it's supposed to be their full-time job. They spend, they have to spend most of the time campaigning, but it's supposed to be their full-time job to try to understand these issues and be able to make well-informed decisions on them. I think the idea that, you know, if you tell someone like, ah, yes, to, to like achieve a, a love, a reasonable level of understanding of something, you have to do all the research yourself, especially from like kind of first primary sources is just like, it's just bonkers. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And what I do is I rely on, on a network of humans that I trust with whom I've established sufficient relationships such that I'm able to get sort of the real take from them and, and pick stuff apart in conversations and, and challenge things and be rechallenged myself that many of whom are either quasi experts in, or at least very interested in topics that I'm not. So a good example is like, I, you know, used to do a ton of research on healthcare and I've, I've lost, I've lost a lot of connection to it, but there's a couple of friends of mine who are really deep in it. And, you know, I learn a lot of stuff from them that gets distilled down because I've sort of delegated and outsourced this, this process a little bit. I get to pick stuff apart. I get to do some select research to 
you know, challenge things or expand on things, then it means that I have a better chance of keeping up without having to spend 12 hours a day on it. The trick here is that you have to have the right mental tool set to be able to listen to someone and just know like, okay, where's this person coming from? What's their curation bias here? What are many of their biases here that are going to get them to present things in a certain way to me, even if they're like doing their damnedest to be accurate with me? You know, because I think the biggest threat is not people trying to be accurate, but but being a little bit off. I think the biggest threat is when you have the war fighters who are who like want something to be true and don't really care if it's not in a lot of ways, you know, those, those are the ones you sort of want to stay away from them as sources of information. And you don't find people who have like a true sense of curiosity. And if you can find people who are truly curious, truly interested in finding truth, willing to change their minds, those are going to be good people with whom you can form a little network of, of truth seeking. I think that's a good strategy. I mean, I think the challenge we all face is one is just time and energy and if you're if someone like like you has this background of being part of networks of highly informed people, that's a different situation from a lot of people in America. So that's a challenge. I, I forgot to say one thing, but I, I guess one tip I would just have is don't get your news from television, television networks in general or entertainment focused. You can see that change. I just interviewed Kevin Cruz um, about his book Fault Lines by him and Julian Zelizer. And one change you see in America is television news becoming much more entertainment focused from the 70s to the present. So, I mean, I don't like dissing people, but I would just say avoid avoid TV as your primary source of news as well. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to continue this further, but I think we might need to wrap up. Maybe we could do a co-episode in another few months about a different topic. Sure. Sounds fun to me. That sounds like a brilliant idea. I've I've what's what's great about this is I think I've left with a lot more. You know, we've not we've closed the loop on absolutely nothing. Exactly. <laughs> we, have, we have just like cracked a bunch of eggs open. So you've succeeded at your Socratic attempt to just raise questions. Yeah, exactly. And thank you. Um, and what stuff I'd like to follow up on includes, you know, let's talk about the change in news media, how that happened, why that happened. That's something I've I've written about and and love talking about. I would love to talk about sort of the challenge of truth finding. And I think we owe a little bit more on our challenges and methodology as well here at Reconsider. What's so hard about it? Because it's something we don't talk meta much on our show, right? We don't talk about the show on the show. But I think it is, I think it is valuable for people in particular. I think the most valuable thing we can do for our listeners that we don't do enough is challenge them to be skeptical of us. Mm, sure. I can get behind that. I think, well, if, if we're laying out follow-up questions that I'd like to discuss, I, I do want to come back to the notion, this is the second question I didn't end up asking, of how to reach people who may be intellectually curious in a way that doesn't get screened for college applications or who perhaps don't have the opportunity to access college, and how to engage with people who are curious or creative in ways that are maybe not seen as standard within like the college profile sort of way, because clearly all of these people are also involved in national politics and regional politics. So next show, Chris. Sounds good. I'm glad you picked a topic. I, that takes work off me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Awesome. Yeah. Just from our perspective, it's been, I mean, I, we're, we're having each other on each other's shows here, but this is, this has been a ton of fun. It's, it's great when we get to interview experts because they're like, ah, yes, like based on all my research, like here's what I know is true about this really thin thing. It's a special pleasure to be able to, you know, get in it and, and crack some things open with someone else who thinks about thinking. 
because it's the god it's hard isn't it so i've i've really enjoyed it i really look forward to the next one chris thank you thanks take care Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.